right. Well, good morning. It's so good to see you. Welcome to Emmaus today. My name is Nathan. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We'll hand them out to you. We'll be in the book near the beginning of the Bible called Joshua. The name of the book is Joshua. In the Bibles that we're handing out, it's on page 149. We'll be in chapter 6, way down at the bottom of page 149. So I encourage you to turn there. I'll also put the scripture on the screen in a minute, but it's great. I'll only be able to quote parts of it. So raise your hand if you like a Bible. Also, if you're on the aisle and there's a basket under your seat, would you hand the basket down the row? Um, these baskets have communication cards in them. If this is your first time here or you'd like to pa pass on a prayer request or any kind of contact information, you can fill out these cards and then turn them back in later in the gathering when we receive an offering. All right. Great, so three things to start this morning. First, welcome. I'm so glad that you have chosen to join us today. Um, I have been with my family on vacation. We went up to Glacier National Park, a two-week road trip, including seven days in the park. And so I haven't been here for a while. If you have joined us in the last couple weeks, please introduce yourself to me today. I'd love to make your acquaintance. Um, we've been able to share some pictures and I had a wonderful time, and it's also such a blessing every time I leave to feel such a burden to come back. It's you that is the draw to this place and to this work that we're doing. Um, we have such an increasing sense of commitment and um, passion for the work that we're a part of together here at Emmaus. So welcome. Glad you're joining us. If this is your first time, I hope you feel right at home and also that you feel challenged this morning. Secondly, I want to acknowledge that it's Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to those of you who have been given uh, that blessing. What a high calling. What a huge and high calling. I want to honor my dad, who's been a huge support of mine uh, from the beginning. And he's been, I have the blessing, and I, I realize the, the value of it more and more each year. I'm 43, and each year the value is recognized uh, more deeply, the value of having a good father, uh, somebody who has supported me, who has encouraged me. Um, even just now, I wasn't sure I saw you, and I felt like, ah, too bad, dad's not here, because he's always here. He's always here for me, and I realize that's a blessing, uh, and, I, and I just want to honor my dad this morning. I just finished a book while I was on vacation that chronicles the last four days of a father's and son's relationship right before the father's impending death, and um, the death, or the, the expected death, catalyzes this completely unprecedented level of honesty and transparency and brokenness and healing between the father and the son as, as, as it's just very clear what's about to happen. And so it's like all bets are off and there's just this beautiful, detailed uh, account of the way this, this relationship um, comes back together. Among other things, the book served as a really helpful reminder to me about this unparalleled importance of, of my relationship with the three people on the planet that call me dad. There's only three people on the planet that call me dad. And there's the almost, there's, there's, it, would be hard to, it would be hard to say there's something that's more important in my life than, than that role of responsibility and blessing that I have in the relationships with my kids. Um, there's no role, I believe, that can cause more damage in the life of a person than the role of father, and there is no role, I believe, that can cause more confidence in the life of a person than the, than the role of a father. Uh, so what a huge calling and privilege. And I want to say to my fellow fathers here uh, this morning, uh, rather than simply, I'd like to just challenge you and challenge myself, rather than simply seeing today as, you know, your day from some sort of shallow position of 
entitlement, I challenge you to think really hard today about the God-given potential that you have and that you still have, even if you only have four days left to live, to change somebody's world. You still have a role to play uh, in the lives of those who call you father. And then finally, I'd like to just thank Melissa and Nick for preaching the last two weeks. What a blessing to hear from others in our community. I think it's so important to hear from other voices. Melissa kicked off our summer series called The Well-Worn Path, um, Old Stories for the Road Ahead. She pointed out, two weeks ago, she pointed out a very important insight from the Emmaus Road story, and that is that the travelers on that story, in that story, the two travelers, which in many ways represent you and me, Uh, They move from confusion to understanding as they walk with Jesus and as Jesus retells the ancient stories of Scripture and shows how they all point to him, how they all are fulfilled in him, in Christ, in the Messiah. In other words, uh, all of the Old Testament points to and fulfills and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Melissa preached the story of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt and showed, showed how that story finds its completion and Jesus is delivering the world from slavery to sin. And then, and she did a great job, and I appreciate it. And then last week, Nick preached on the story of a guy named Gideon, who was called by God to face just impossible odds. I mean, it's almost laughable odds. He's supposed to fight an army of 135,000 with 300 men. So literally, mathematically, 450 to 1 are the odds there. It is the call to do the impossible. And God gives that in all seriousness to this man named Gideon, And shows, in doing so, that God is the most powerful thing that there is. Nothing is more powerful, nothing is more uh, important, nothing has more strength. There is no force that can be uh, compared to God. And so we should take comfort in that, Nick said. Um, We should place our hope in God, even when we're faced with hopeless situations or overwhelming situations. God is the deliverer. He delivers over and over and over again. And so we should hold on to him. Two really solid messages. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Melissa, for uh, preaching to our community. I think it's so helpful to hear from other voices. Today, I want to I retell a famous story um, that lands, chronologically, it lands between the story of Moses and the story of Gideon. Um, it's one of the earliest stories in the life of a man named Joshua, who is Moses' assistant. That's how he begins. He's Moses' assistant. So Moses leads the people of Israel out of slavery where they have been serving Egypt for 400 years. Um, and then, from a, for, so from a spiritual perspective and from a psychological perspective, Moses is kind of a father figure to Joshua. And one of the primary dynamics of the early days in Joshua's leadership is the question, can Joshua live up to the standard established by Moses. In other words, does Joshua have what it takes? Very real question. God was clearly with Moses, undeniably with Moses, in a way that was unprecedented. In fact, in Exodus, it's written that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as though with a friend. Uh, and, and so Moses also seemed to, un, to just wield this unprecedented power. God uses it. I mean, Moses puts his stick in the ocean and it parts. Um, Moses brings the Ten Commandments down to the people of God. And and Joshua was there too, which is interesting. Joshua was there with Moses. But Joshua was like holding his water bottle. Joshua was the guy that drapes the towel over Moses when he comes off the floor and needs a few minutes uh, a break, right? He's the assistant. He's just there to like serve Moses. But then something crazy happens. God tells Moses, you're not going into the promised land. 
which is a shock. You can look at it from this mountain across the river, but you're not going to go in. Joshua will lead the people into the promised land. Yes, you, Moses, you led them out of slavery. Yes, you, Moses, you led them faithfully for 40 years in the desert. You even led the people through their first two battles, which happen somewhere in the desert as they encounter these, these uh, groups that are um, in conflict with them. But now it will be Joshua's job to lead the people across the river Jordan and into the promised land, the land that God has promised to the people, which is a rich land. It's a fertile land. Oh, and by the way, it's already occupied. Oh, and by the way, it's heavily fortified by other nations who built those cities. So Joshua, that's your job. You go from water boy to go tackle those established and fortified cities. The theme of God's instruction to Joshua in the first chapter of the book, Joshua, is, and he says it over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, be strong and courageous. The last time he says, be very courageous. Why does God say this over and over again to Joshua? Because Joshua needs to hear that over and over again. He's very afraid. He's totally intimidated, right? And so here is, he's going to step into the sandals of Moses. He goes from holding Moses' towel to taking over the, 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 the leadership role and it's intimidating. So here's how the story is presented in Joshua chapter 6 on page 149 in your Bibles, and I'll put it up here. The very first challenge that Joshua is going to face, the very first task he is given as the leader of the people is to take this city called Jericho. Here's how it goes. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one went in. Why is the city so securely locked up? Because, I mean, the Israelites have already got a reputation. These are the people that were slaves, and all of a sudden the ocean parted, and they were freed from slavery after 400 years. It's almost impossible for us to conceive. These are the people that, they've already beat a couple of nations on the other side of the river. And then the, the people in Jericho could see the river Jordan, and they could see how at one point that river just stopped flowing, and this whole nation comes in to their backyard. And so they are, it's clear that there is a very real fuel that is empowering the people um, called Israel. Here's how it continues. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. Isn't that interesting? Past tense. Chronologically, it hasn't happened yet. But here he says, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king, along with its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. The ark was this gold box which held the Ten Commandments, really the symbol and the sacred sort of presence of God. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So the rest of chapter six tells the story in, in, in high detail. Um, and this is really important for us to understand as we read this story, that this is not just another battle in the Old Testament. Okay, you got to understand, just, I know that the Old Testament gets really confusing because it's just so epic and big, but this is not just another battle. This will be a battle through which God reveals himself to Joshua in an unprecedented way. This will be a battle through which God reveals himself to the people of Israel and through which God establishes a very important 
transferable truth. He's going to communicate a truth that they need to hear. He's going to communicate a truth that we need to hear. This is the point of the battle. God's going to reveal himself. He's going to communicate bedrock truth, something we need to know, something they needed to know. And in a really simplified form, and I'll expand on this more in the next few minutes, but this is the simple truth, that God is the giver of all good things. He's going to reveal that to them at this moment. They need to know this. We need to know this. There are some serious ramifications to the fact that God is the giver of all good things. So let me pause for a moment at this point and just sort of address a sidebar issue that almost always comes up whenever we tell stories like this, whenever we look to the Old Testament, and that is this. What is the deal with all the violence? I mean, there's just so much horrific violence. It can be difficult to read the Old Testament because of all the destruction, the genocide, the killing of women and children. It's not just the bad guys who are doing this, by the way, which really kind of makes it challenging for some of us to, to figure it out. God is, and including myself, God is commanding people like Joshua to attack, to destroy, to in most cases occupy cities that were built by other people. It can feel very offensive to us. It can be, feel very wrong on a sort of moral level to us. I have a good friend who was reading through the Old Testament. I asked her how it was going. She said I had to stop doing it. It was just so violent. I couldn't hang with it any, any, any longer. How do you reconcile the fact that God is telling Joshua to totally destroy, and this is a quote, everything that breathes in Jericho? <laughs> how do you reconcile the fact that God tells Joshua kill everything that breathes with the fact that Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets by saying, love God and love people. How do those two things go together? How do you reconcile that? That's a real challenge, and there is no, I think, easy answer, but here are two clues that I'll address, again, just in sort of a sidebar of the sermon. Clue number one, to a significant degree, war was the dominant means of communication in the culture. War was the dominant means of communication. It still is, sadly, I think, but, um, and this isn't a complete answer, but this is part of the answer. If God is going to communicate not just to a man like Abraham, who he was just able to speak to, if God's not just going to communicate to a family by giving them a child and revealing it, not, God's just not going to communicate to a tribe or to a nation, but now God's going to communicate to a whole, to more nations, to the whole world. It stands to reason that God may begin not end with, but begin by revealing himself in the way that communicates most basically and most clearly to the culture. In other words, in cultures where the existence of gods were verified by the demonstrations of power associated with those gods, the one true God reveals himself through decisive demonstrations of power. Power over nature, watch me split an ocean, power over nations. These are the two big demonstrations of power. These are the two big means of revealing himself initially in the Old Testament. So that's one clue towards reconciling this really challenging uh, puzzle. Here's a second clue towards harmonizing the violence in the Old Testament. God is revealing, he's telling a bigger story. We, we just have to get over this focus on the individual. He's revealing a bigger truth. He's telling a bigger story. Th that's... Um, what, what often happens in conversations that I have is, is questions like this. Well, what about, you know, what about, the, what about the kid who was born in Jericho two weeks before Israel shows up? What about him? Doesn't God care about him? 
I know, that's, ch that's really challenging. That's tough. And, and I, all I can do is say God must sort that out in the end. God does what's right. But it's clear that God is telling a much bigger story than the story of the individual. Okay, it, It's bigger than that. So we were camping in Glacier. And uh, I would get up early in the morning and I'd read Joshua. It had been years since I'd read Joshua. So I'm reading Joshua and I'm just totally loving it. And then at breakfast I'm telling uh, my family about the stories that I'm reading and the things that I'm learning. And at one point, my six-year-old, Matthias, he, he, uh, he kind of, he's confused, understandably. And he says, is Joshua a good guy or a bad guy? <laughs> right? Is Joshua a good guy or a bad guy? What a great question. What an honest question. Because that's the way we, we think. That's the way we think. There's that six-year-old logic that exists in all of us. Like, I want to simplify this into good versus bad. That would really help me to understand and be sort of at peace with this. But it's actually not that simple a uh, few things are. Um, it's definitely not what this is about. This is about God revealing himself. This is about God telling a bigger story. In fact, there's this fantastic scene in Joshua 5, which actually begins the story of the Jericho battle, um, where Joshua encounters an angel of God. This is Joshua 5.13. I'll just read it to you. Now, Joshua... Uh, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemy? Neither, he replied. Isn't that interesting? Neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Are you with us or are you with them? Are you a good guy or are you a bad guy? And the answer is neither, because in other words, your simple six-year-old categories don't fit this situation. Something much bigger than that is going on here. God's telling a bigger story. God's revealing bigger truths. Oh, and by the way, take your shoes off, because this is a holy place, because God's going to reveal his word to the world. He's going to reveal himself to the world. So you better get down on your face right now, because this isn't even about you in Jericho. This is about something way bigger than that that God is going to do, right? I love that. What is the story? What is the thing that God is going to reveal to them? It's this, that all that God gives is a gift. That's the revelation. All that God gives is a gift, and there are huge ramifications of that. So here's how the Jericho story continues. Uh, verse 15, on the seventh day, remember they've gone around the city once a day for six straight days, must be freaking the people out inside. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak. They marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies. Fascinating story. Read about it. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel, fascinating phrase, liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. So, Here's the specific instruction that Joshua gives the people. Number one, God has given you this city. 
He has given you this city. All that God gives is a gift. Therefore, everything in this city is to be devoted to God. What does that mean? It means God decides how the gift will be used. It means God gets to determine the purpose of these things. And the purpose of everything ultimately is to glorify God according to what he wants to happen. In other words, it's not yours. It is given to you to do with what God says to do. None of it belongs to you. None of it is personal property. Don't use any of it for personal gain. He says, stay away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. He's very clear about that. He goes on to say, otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble upon it. In other words, when God gives you a gift and you use it in a way that is not intended by God for you to use it in, two things are happening. You're forgetting that it was a gift from God in the first place. Whether it's your child, your home, any kind of... You're for, when you say, you know what, thank you very much, I'll just do what I want. You're forgetting that was a gift from God. And secondly, you're beginning to think, I, I earned that. I'm entitled to that. I deserve that. That's mine. You're taking it as your own. You're using it for personal gain. And not only the individual, but the whole community suffers. Okay, this kind of attitude, the one that says, look, I'm the one fighting for this. I'm the one getting up early and working for this. I'm hustling for this. I'm sacrificing my time for this. It's mine. This demonstrates this fundamental error of understanding of the way things work. All that God gives is a gift, friends. All that God gives is a gift. And the failure to recognize that truth has devastating consequences both on the individual and on the community as a whole. Did you, I mean, the phrase that Joshua uses, I think, is really important. I hope it sticks in your head. It renders a person or a community liable to destruction. Liable to destruction. The failure to understand the bigger message that all that God gives is a gift is, is this terrible vulnerability that you expose yourself to. It's a devastating liability that you expose your business to, your family to, your marriage to, your soul to. The idea that it's mine is the door through which destruction enters the family, through which destruction enters the business. It's mine, my precious. That's the problem right there. That's the entryway of real evil. Uh, in fact, I think it's interesting. I, some of you know I, 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 I like this uh, sixth-century monk a lot. I, I benefit from him a lot. His name is uh, Saint Benedict, and, and he actually refers to the idea of personal property as, the, as fundamentally opposed to Christianity. He says because it so deeply promotes the priority of personal fulfillment as the goal of life. He won't even let monks have their own pens, right? because it's not about me. It's about us. So the walls of Jericho fall in the story. The city is totally destroyed. Everything is devoted to God, and that's how the story ends. That's the happy ending, right? Except that's not where the story ends. That's just where it ended in Sunday school for some of us. But that's actually not where the story ends. Why? Why doesn't the story end at the end of chapter 6? Because we've always had a really hard time with devotion. We've always had a hard time with devotion. Here's how chapter 7 begins. But... But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So one dude, 
One dude takes this, what turns out to be a beautiful robe, a bunch of silver coins, a big wedge of gold, buries it under his tent, and the whole nation is going to be affected, is going to suffer. So chapter 7 begins, Israel was unfaithful, and I'm reading it, and I'm going, no, Achan was unfaithful. Not the whole, one guy was unfaithful, but apparently God wants to communicate that the failure of one individual to recognize that all that God gives is a gift to be devoted back to God is a sin that affects not just the individual, but it affects the whole community. So here's what happens next, and I'm going to start fast-forwarding. The next nation to be taken or um, attacked is this nation called Ai. A-I. Everybody say Ai. Very nice. So they're up next, and Joshua sends spies into Ai, and they come back, and they're like, they're just a JV nation. There's just almost there. We can totally take these guys. All we need is two or 3,000 people to go in there, and they'll be ours. So Joshua's like, great, go do it. So they send two or 3,000 Israeli uh, soldiers into Ai, and they get routed. They get totally routed. This is what it says. They chased Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people, the Israeli people, melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Remember, that's like the presence of the Lord. Remaining there till evening, the elders of Israel did the same. They sprinkled dust on their heads, a sign of mourning. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring the people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. This is the refrain you hear from the Israelites all the time. If only we would have stayed in Egypt. Now, if only we would have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us. They'll wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? And what happens next is awesome. What happens next is awesome. It's the only place I know of in the Bible where God responds like this to somebody repenting and bowing down before the Lord. You ready for it? Here's what it is. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. <laughs> what are you doing down on your face? I've never seen this before in the Bible. What are you doing? Stand up. And then he explains it. Israel has sinned. They have Let me just spell this out for you, Joshua. This is no mystery here. Israel sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They what does that mean? They've stolen and they've lied. They've put them with their own possessions. That is why. That is why. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run. Because they've been made liable to destruction. So God says to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing? There's no mystery here. You got routed because you stole the stuff that was mine. And then you lied about it, saying that you hadn't done it. You took the gift that was given to you for my purposes, and you tried to use it for personal gain. This is not the way it works. This is not the way it works. And um, I won't be with you, he says, Unless you get this straight, I will not be with you anymore unless you do destroy whatever among you was devoted to destruction. All that God gives is a gift. All that God gives is a gift. And so then Achan's sin is revealed. He is dealt with severely. 
Then Israel attacks Ai a second time, totally destroys them. And then Joshua leads Israel to defeat 29 consecutive nations after that without a single loss. And they occupy the promised land. Okay, that's how the story really kind of ends. So to summarize, God gives them Jericho, the first city, in order to reveal a specific truth. And that truth is that God, all that God gives is a gift. One person, one person tries to leverage God's gift for personal gain, and the whole community suffers. They had to learn this lesson, and they do learn the lesson, and Joshua never loses a battle again, ever. His professional record is 31-1. and one. He loses once to I, he comes back in the rematch, defeats them, and then he's 29-0 and 0 for his next 29 fights. So what's the bigger story God is telling through this story? It's the story that all God gives is a gift and that all God gives is given for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose ultimately is to glorify God. And the story is initially communicated through very brutal acts of war in the earliest days of Israel's history. But 1,300 years later, another man named Joshua comes on the scene. The Hebrews pronounce the word Yeshua. You know him by the Greek translation of his name, Jesus. And he fulfills this Old Testament story. Rather than taking life to reveal the power of God... Jesus gives his own life to reveal the love and the power of God to the whole world. Rather than framing devotion in terms of destruction, Jesus frames devotion in terms of total dedication of life. And his, follow, his followers talk about offering your bodies, your whole lives as a living sacrifice. What a crazy concept for them. Not a sacrifice that you kill, but a living sacrifice where all that you do, all that you have, your whole life is given over to God as the ultimate act of worship. But the central message of both the first Joshua story and the second Joshua or Jesus' story is the same, and that is that all God gives is a gift, and it is to be used to glorify God. Let me give you three examples of what this looks like. If God has given you life, it should be fully devoted to God. How do I do that? Jesus made it really clear. You love God, you love people. How do I devote my whole life to God? Well, in big terms, it's you love God, you love people. Second example, if God has given you a home, your home should be fully devoted to God. Or, or how do I do that? Well, you place God first in your home. You raise your children with that priority system established and demonstrated by the way you live in your home. You offer your home to others through hospitality. Third example, if God has given you an income, it should be fully devoted to God. It's all a gift. No, I earned it. No, it's a gift that God has enabled you to receive and has, he has given it to you to steward. Right? And more for our sakes than for his sake, he has told us to return a portion of it. In the Old Testament, it's 10%. In the, in the New Testament, it's more. To return it to your local faith community as a demonstration of the fact that you recognize the big picture, that all of it is a gift. It's all to be used to honor and glorify the Lord. And many of us are, are just simply unwilling to do even this. Why is that? Because we have such a hard time with devotion when it comes to practical things. We really have a hard time with devotion. 
We are, many of us, categorically unwilling to do that on levels like time and money. It's just not what we're willing to do. And if Joshua were here, he would say to us, well, I learned that lesson. I learned that lesson. There is a connection, in other words, between the devoted life and the powerful life. There is a positive connection between being devoted and being powerful. And I don't know if he would have put it in such a positive way because he's probably a pretty salty guy, right? Uh, He's a warrior. So maybe he would have said something like, flimsy devotion is the root of your spiritual impotence. Something like that. All that God gives is a gift. It is not for me to possess. It is for me to steward. It is not mine. My children are not mine. My home is not mine. My income is not mine. It's for me to steward. It's not for me to use for my own purposes. And what's true for the individual is even more true for the community. All that God gives to us is a gift. All that God provides for us is to be stewarded by us, this church, cared for by us, this church, used as a tool to glorify God in this time and in this place to which God has brought us. Amen? Amen. So, next Sunday, we will gather for worship, but I will not be preaching a sermon. Instead, I'm going to be sharing news uh, of a gift that it seems God is giving to our community. In recent months, and I've shared this in the last few weeks, God has been birthing in us this vision for restoration, for the restoration of all things. For 11 years, we've been sharing life together. We've been discovering Jesus together. We've been on this, this journey from road, discovery, to table, encounter. And in recent months... We, we feel like God is calling us to join the Emmaus travelers in getting back on the road, going, returning to our place of brokenness with the message of restoration, with the mission of restoring all things. And as we have begun to articulate this vision, as we at, at, on a leadership level and, and the board level begin to put things into practice, embracing this vision, in recent weeks, a new opportunity has been revealed to us and it's time sensitive so I can't say anything more about it today, but I'm going to roll out the whole story next week. And together, relying on the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we will together decide if, in fact, God is leading Emmaus Church community in this direction. If you're an official member of Emmaus Church, please prioritize being here next week. There will be a time for questions and answers, and we will hold an official community congregational votes. If you know that you'll be out of town, please plan to watch the recording of next week's, next week's um, gathering online on Monday. And if you're a member, an official member of our church, and you know you won't be here next week, please email rich, uh, rich at emmauscommunity.org. Let him know I'm a member, I'm not going to be here on the 26th, and he will send you a link so that you can watch the presentation and then vote. All right? After you watch the message. That's all I can say today. Um, And that's good. That's good. And let me just end by telling you why that's good. It's good because what the gift is doesn't really matter. What matters is will our community faithfully receive and steward the gift? That's what really matters. 
Will, will this community be able to use whatever it is that God gives us to honor God? In other words, will the gift be viewed in terms of possession or in terms of devotion? Uh, will the gift be a useful tool in the restoration of all things? All that God gives, friends. All that God gives is a gift. All that God gives is a gift to be used to glorify God. Whether it's the gift of fatherhood, whether it's the gift of a home, whether it's the gift of a job, whether it's the gift of suffering, may we not take it as our own, may we steward it well, and may, we, may it all be fully devoted to God and his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. I'm so grateful for the well-worn path, Lord, that we're not charting new territory. Instead, we're looking at the lives of others who have faithfully followed you. We're um, benefiting from the accurate um, record of failures so that we don't have to fall into the same traps. And I pray for grace, even for our own community, even for us as individuals, knowing that our own health affects the greater health of this community, believing that you have a plan and a future for this church. And I pray for the grace to know and to embrace and to follow your will. Encourage us this week. I pray especially that we would enter into um, a, a week of preparation and openness and that we would be ready to receive and to consider and to decide and to trust together as a community. And I thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Why don't you stand up with me? We'll take a